We are in a season, the season of Epiphany, and it's become our tradition, as you know, to use this sermon time during this series to speak about different revelations or epiphanies that are meaningful to us these days. And this morning, what I want to talk about is why I still believe in church. Why I still believe in church. And there are plenty of reasons not to, but why I still believe in church. And borrowing from the text, um, I want to help us do some of the gazing that the Apostle Paul was just talking about in that reading I did. But first, before I get there, let me just tell a few quick stories um, of what makes it hard for me to believe in church. And and I know you have, you know, many, many stories of your own um, and you continue to add to those stories, I'm sure. But let me add just kind of three, three obvious ones. And I'll start with a rather easy one. You know, we have people like, and I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings here, but we have people like, for example, Mark Driscoll. Um, and I will admit that somewhere floating around on the interwebs or on my computer hard drive, there is a picture of Mark Driscoll and me with arms locked from when he came to Austin during the 2000s and he spoke at something and I was there and, and I dragged Heather with me and I made us stay afterwards so we could get a picture with him. And I didn't get his autograph, but I do have a picture with him. Um, and I used to think the world of him and his movement and his sense of conviction with which he engaged, uh, you know, his work and things like that. But then obviously, you know, it was incredibly troubling as I began to come to awareness and wake up about how power was used in communities and in churches and in the world. And over the past, you know, 15 or so years, watch his abuse of power and his overcommitment to patriarchal and hyper-masculinized interpretations of the Christian faith. Um, I just began to think, man, I, I am done with this guy. And this is an incredible turnoff um, to ministry. But I realized I don't have to be like him, you know. And then this past summer, I listened to a podcast series. Perhaps you've heard of it, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's incredible. And it details the many abuses of power by Driscoll and the cultish nature of centralized religious power and how dangerous that is. And I'm not here this morning to take shots at him. I'm just here to kind of say his behaviors and those like him have caused a loss of trust in church for many, and I'm sure you've encountered your Driscolls uh, during during your time here. Here's a story that is um, a little bit more uh, difficult. Um, Jean Vanier. Any of you familiar with Jean Vanier and the L'Arche movement? So he was the founder and leader of L'Arche, this worldwide movement that founded communities where people of all abilities lived and worked together. It's beautiful, powerful, life-changing for so many. His application of the good news of Jesus was life-changing for me, the way he decided to like apply it to real-world problems. And I remember where I was standing. You ever had one of those? You remember where you were. I remember where I was standing when I first heard him speak in an interview with Krista Tippett during an On Being episode. And and I don't know how to describe what happened other than a continental size iceberg broke off of my frozen, rigid theology of exclusion 
and othering in a moment, and it floated out into the warm currents of spirit flowing boundaryless, um, and it became part of this global ecosystem of life. I just came alive as I listened to him speak, and it's really hard to overstate how much he influenced me. And then uh, in 2020, after his death, allegations of abuse of power and particularly sexual abuse surfaced. And after investigation, they were confirmed by the large uh, leadership. Um, and that was really hard for me because he was one of those spiritual giants for me. Um, and so for these allegations to surface and be confirmed and all of that was really hard and really dis disillusioning. Uh, thank you, David. I was one. I, I don't know if any of you are familiar with Jean Vanier, but uh, that, that was tough. Um, and let me bring it even closer to home. So in, in my own experience, a kind of third and final example here, my first role in ministry uh, was as an intern at my hometown church during college, during all the summer breaks and the winter breaks. I was an intern there uh, for the, the youth and college minister. And as far as I was concerned, Ray hung the freaking moon. I mean, he was incredible. He was a mentor. He was a friend. He was a surrogate dad to me in many ways. But there came this point in 2005, after we'd known each other for several years, when he wasn't returning any of my calls for a couple of weeks. And this was weird because even though I was away in college, Ray and I spoke every single week and we were really close. And so finally, I stopped trying to call his cell phone and I called the church office directly and I asked for him and Mary, the church secretary, with unbearable reluctance in her voice. I can still hear it today. She said, um, Matthew, Ray doesn't work here anymore. And I hate to be the one to tell you this, but he's been fired for an inappropriate relationship with one of the youth. I mean, this absolutely turned my 22-year-old world upside down. You know, that was hard. That was really freaking hard. And I'm sure, again, you've had experiences like this that, that shake your trust in the community of church down to as deep as it possibly can go. You've, you've had your own Driscoll's and Jean Vanier's and Ray's. And in fact, uh, both Dorothy Day and St. Augustine are credited with saying something like, the church may be a harlot, but she's still my mother. And I, I and okay, I, I get what they're saying there, but I think they slightly missed the mark. And it would have been more accurate to say that the church's leaders very often go cheap for pleasure and power. And that's something we've got to be aware of. But I know I'm speaking this morning to people that take the time to dial into a church service and attend church service in, in person often. And so we're still here for some reason. We have our reasons. And um, it's not just because we feel like we have to check the box. Uh, yeah, that's that's actually the actual quote, but I was, <laughs> I was trying to church it up a little bit there. But yes, that's it. Um, we're here for some reason. I want to talk about, you know, why I'm still here. We don't just show up because we feel guilty if we don't, because we're way past that, that feeling of guilt about not going to church. Thanks be to God for that. So let me just share a few reasons. And like I did at my last Epiphany sermon, I believe a year ago, you know, I had six points in it. So I'm going to have six very quick, brief points. And I want to, uh, I want to run through those. So 
my first reason of why I still continue to go to church is because the church is this place where we can learn to live in the world as it is while also learning to lean toward what could be. We hold these two things in tension. We have this, the church teaches us the realistic realities, sometimes ugly realities of what church is, but then also it gives us this vision and this hope for what could be. It helps us think and act non-dualistically and hold these two things in tension. I mean, the most obvious fact about Christianity is that our primary figure was murdered murdered by those who wanted to hold on to power. And our most important book is full of stories of people who likewise did awful things, and it's incredibly descriptive of how messed up people can be. There's a reason Jesus tells his followers to be wise as serpents. The world can be a messed up place, but there's more to our life of faith than that. A healthy church community stands in stark contrast to the common ways of our society, and it makes us seem a little crazy, a little odd, a little weird. It's this prophetic witness of a different value system and a different reality where we strive not to just be a subset of society where all of society's pathologies are recreated. We don't want to do that. We don't want to recreate the pathologies of society where the rules of money and attraction and power rule. No, instead of recreating power dynamics here, we heal from them here. Here we are trained and equipped with new tools to change them. This is our microcosm. This is our small world where we practice new ways of being so that we can go out into the world as missionaries and live our lives out bearing good news for other through our lives. Here is where we practice leaning toward what could be. Here we lean into the concepts of resurrection and forgiveness and agape love and this inheritance of belonging, belonging by birthright, just by being born, I have the right to belong. And this notion of behold, I am making all things new like Jonathan sang about. Churches where we make these seemingly naive hopes into our highest virtues and values. Believe it or not, that's rare. Believe it or not, you don't get these themes on any news channel you're going to tune into or the PTA or the boardroom or the playground. You're not going to encounter somewhere that holds these as the highest virtues and values, resurrection, hope, new life, forgiveness, agape love. This is the unique place where we take these things and make them the most important and say, let's drive toward this together. And of course, you don't have to go to church to do this. You can inculcate these into your small family and friends circle, and I hope you do. But there's something in measure about a, lar a larger community that says, okay, let's try to live these values and virtues together. This is collectivism at its best, where we say, let's embody virtues that the rest of society thinks are crazy, but we think would actually bring about the healing of the world. So that's my first reason. This is the place where we, we lean toward a different reality. My second reason that I believe in the church still, church is a powerful delivery system 
for physical, social, spiritual, and mental care. It's a powerful delivery system. You get bad news, illness, death, pain, loss, grief. Who do you call? Probably somebody in this community. And have you seen us rally around and care for one another? It is beautiful. Have you witnessed the work of the people in providing space for grief and joy? It is beautiful. I'll speak personally. Heather and I have lost three pregnancies, but we were never alone in that. You all were there. The church was there to catch us when our lives were in free fall. It was incredible. We had church. We have helped bury one another's loved ones. We have cried together. We have welcomed new life into the world together. We have sat together through long spiritual winters together. We have helped rebuild one another's internal worlds and made them flourish like this garden of Eden. We are doing that for one another by God's spirit and grace. We are doing that and it's beautiful. I'll also remind you, the church was a main hub for the civil rights movement. I mean, I can point to stuff like that. And I often want to remind people that Dr. MLK was actually Reverend Dr. MLK. He was motivated by this deep faith that drove him. And the church was this hub for social change on such a massive scale. And not everyone who participated in the civil rights movement was religious, but I struggle to see how it would have had the same impact without the structures and paradigms of churches that were the heartbeat of their communities. And I'll, I'll just say lastly on this point, a good church also provides immeasurable amounts of mental health care. We just do. That's what we do. And in fact, you know, for millennia before we had the idea of therapists, we had the church and, and clergy and church leaders and those who were shaped by this spiritual tradition who provided mental health care to one another, all right? Now, study after study has shown that the most effective aspect of mental health care isn't the techniques or the theories or coming to some new insight or lying on a couch and talking about how your parents jacked you up. No, that's not the most effective part of mental health care. The most important aspect of therapy has shown again and again to be the relationship between two people. The relationship between one who is giving care and one who is receiving care. That alliance of respect and responsiveness to needs and mutuality and vulnerability and collaboration and compassion and empathy and commitment and all of these things. This is the, this is the Bifrost Bridge that transports people into new worlds. There's a kind of a Marvel reference for you nerds out there. It's that relationship. And studies continue to show that it's the relationship that heals people. And these are also the things that we teach and we work to embody here in our community, our healthy relationships, providing physical, social, spiritual, and mental care to one another. And the church delivers that unlike so any other organization can. So that's my second reason. I want to apologize. I'm not even looking at comments if um, if you're commenting. So I'm just going to press on. I'll try to get to them in a little bit. Reason number three, church is where we encounter the big issues in life, the big issues in life. Issues like 
What do I do with the fact that I will inevitably harm myself and I will harm others? What do I do with that? Here in church, we say, all right, we call that sin. When you rupture relationship with yourself and with others and with God, oh, we got a name for that. We can actually call that something and we call that sin. And we can talk about how to heal from that, how to stop doing those crazy behaviors, how to repair those relationships and those ruptures. We can talk about the way Jesus did that and the way God calls us to do that. We address the big questions of what do I do with this awareness that I have because I have a prefrontal cortex that my body's going to die one day and yet I can't fathom complete non-being now that I've known life. What do I do with that? You know, we call this heaven and we talk about how our being is wrapped up with God and God's eternal being. And so what happens with my body is not the end of me. And that's a mystery. And I don't speak with a lot of certainty about that because I don't know it's wrapped up in the eternality of God's goodness. That's the best I can talk about it with right now. But we attempt, we, we, we attend to this big question. Or well, what do we do with the fact that the world is so incredibly unjust at times? This, again, is the space where we wrestle with these massive questions. This is what we do for one another. Now, I could go onto Twitter and continually type in just B-I-T-F-D, burn it down. Or I can participate in a community like this, where we wrestle with issues of injustice every week. Sometimes that leads us to lament with one another. And sometimes that leads us to strategize with how to engage it effectively and do what Jesus called us to do in his prayer. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. All right, let's move toward that. Let's lean toward that together. So church is where we encounter the big issues in life and we accompany one another in responding to them. We're halfway there. Number four, church is where we encounter the divine the ultimate, the highest and the holiness, the epitome of everything that we know to be capital G, good, and capital L, life. Church is where we encounter God. Sure. Now, you can encounter God anywhere, right? We believe in omnipresence, all present. God is everywhere. But this is this is the one unique community in all of society where it's like that. that is our highest goal and our highest good. That is what we are seeking to help one another do together. Again, you're not going to get that in the PTA. You're not going to get that at a tech startup. You're not going to get that somewhere else. You're not going to get that on I-35, although all of those are places where you're going to certainly encounter people who think they're God, uh, but, but you're not going to get to encounter the eternal God. You know what I'm talking about? This is a unique setting where we get to do that. And in a healthy church, all of our wannabe gods are dethroned and our tendency to act like God, it's unmasked as merely LARPing uh, as a wannabe God. And our abuse of power is tempered by this sacred story we have of the God who was crucified. And oh my goodness, that completely shapes then what does power look like if God allows God's self to be crucified? Wow, that completely redefines how I use power if the all-powerful says, I will be crucified, and it's through dying that I move toward 
resurrection and eternal life. Wow, that completely then reshapes how we use power. Church, though, also is this place where we encounter that one who says incredible life-giving things to us like, who told you you were naked? Remember that question in the Garden of Eden? Who told you you were vulnerable and made you feel like that's a bad thing? What a beautiful life-giving question, questioning the premise that being naked and vulnerable is a bad thing, questioning the premise of maybe you shouldn't believe all the voices you hear out there in the world. Why don't you come back to me who will remind you that you are beautiful, good, loved, accepted, and held, and this is the place you can be vulnerable is with me. Church is the place where we encounter the one who calls us by our truest names, child, beloved, new creation. Church is where we encounter the one who ever calls us toward life so abundant, we have to use words like eternal. Church is the beach that we gather on to contemplate the boundless ocean of goodness, feeling immeasurably small by it, and at the same time, part of it. Church is the only place in society where we get to encounter all of that. Reason number five of why I still believe in church, and I, I know I'm going long. It's a six-point sermon. I should have I should have known better, so I'll hurry along. Reason number five, church is where we encounter others. Church, we don't just come here to meet with God. We come here to encounter others who are on that same journey. And believe it or not, our society is not really set up so as to facilitate respectful heart-to-heart -heart connections between diverse groups. That may come as a surprise to you, uh, but a healthy church is. I'll admit we're not there yet, but it's a goal of ours. A healthy church is a full ecosystem of diverse beliefs and approaches to life and philosophies. It is not monocultural. It is a full ecosystem. It is not where we cookie cut out what Christians should look like. And the leadership here at this church does not require strict adherence to a rigid set of dogmatic beliefs. And instead, we strive toward the image that the prophet Isaiah painted for us and that Jonathan sang about for us of this peaceable kingdom where the lion and the lamb or the wolf and the lamb lie down together. And to use some of today's language, it's the place where the capitalists and the socialists lie down together. It's the place where the libertarians and the anarchists and you know everybody of every political stripe come together, where the patriots and the anti-patriots, where the hedonists and the stoics, where the fatalists and the existentialists, where this Noah's Ark full of species gather together to escape a flood. It is not monocultural. It is an ecosystem. It's like that reading that Christopher did for us a few minutes ago, where the text uses the image of body parts completely different and yet belonging to one another. And I just want to say, as I conclude this point, point number five, I don't want to name people specifically, but I know there are people here in this community who simply don't like each other. I know that. And let me just say, I'm glad you're both here. And my suspicion is that you actually need one another if you want to grow. And I hope we will never become a monocultural church. I hope we'll always be a full ecosystem church where there are people here who just don't like each other. Because again, I know you need to encounter one another in your full 
humanity and divinity that you are. And in that encounter, you are going to grow and you are going to move toward who you are called to be in God. And church is that place where we hold that tension of encountering one another. And then lastly, my final point, that leads to my final point, reason number six, church is where we are committed to keep growing. We, that is our, that is what we do. We say we haven't arrived. We are still on the journey together. And the text I read from you, from the Apostle Paul, he's writing to this little church trying to figure out what it meant to live the way of Jesus and live committed to one another in a rather godless city. And in it, he writes these words where he says, as we gaze upon God's glory and we reflect on all these things, we are being transformed into God's image with ever increasing glory. We are constantly growing from glory to glory, constantly being transformed. And he says to them, look, we are on this trajectory of transformation and growth. We are headed somewhere. And that's probably why we were first known as the people of the way. We are on a journey. We are on the way. Now, we were planning this morning to do this person disservice in person. Right. And my plan for this part of the sermon, it was going to be so much fun. I was going to make everyone look around and then I was going to say, I want you to take note of somebody that you have seen grow during your time in this community. And I want to make you uncomfortable. And I want to ask you right now to point at that person. Come on. That would have been fun. Right. Imagine yourselves. Who would you have looked at? Who would you have pointed at and said, I've seen that person grow and it's been beautiful to watch. I want to invite you. I know you love commenting. So take a moment and chat it. Who have you seen grow in this community during your time here? Or maybe you want to claim how you've seen yourself grow during your time in this community, how, how you have grown in our collective vocation here in this community, our vocation of practicing love, of practicing resurrection, uh, of living as if all of the false gods that we worship before are actually false and following the living God. How have you seen yourself grow? I invite you to chat that as well. I want to celebrate that with you because this is the place where we are always growing and always being transformed from glory to glory as we gaze upon God's glory. And so in conclusion, there you go. My six reasons for why I still believe in church. I'll admit that these are still more aspirational than they are actual. We aspire toward them. They are not actual yet, but we lean toward that. I'm sure people in this community have disappointed you. I'm sure I have disappointed you. I'm sure we will, we will disappoint you at times, and I would invite you to reach out to me or whoever it is that's disappointed you. Have a dialogue about that so you and that other person can grow and move forward together and take that transformational journey. And it's a long journey, right? Just like it's taken me 15 years of a healthy marriage to Heather to rehabilitate my deeply wrong notions of what marriage and family are. It's taken 15 years of rehab for me with Heather. It's going to take many years and a long journey of us together to rehabilitate what church is and what it could be. 
but I'm excited to do that with you. And I've seen enough in these handful of years to be excited and to believe. And by God's grace, may we continue to stretch toward what it could be, continue to grow toward what it could be, and envision together that reality, gazing together upon what it could be. And as we do so, may we who with unveiled faces gaze upon God's glory be transformed into that beautiful image. Amen.